Mike Galaxy here with Verse Chorus Noise. On this installment, we take a spin with punk and new wave pioneers Blondie and their critically acclaimed and best-selling album Parallel Lines. Parallel Lines was the band's third studio album for Chrysalis Records and was released on September 23, 1978. The album was their first produced by Mike Chapman and recorded at the record plant New York City in the summer of 1978. The album was sore supported by their hit singles Picture This, Hanging on the Telephone, Sunday Girl, and Heart of Glass, which shot to number one in the U.S. Parallel Lines would go on to sell over 20 million copies worldwide, including over a million in both the U.S. and U.K., pushing the album to chart at number six in the U.S. and number one in the U.K. New York Times declared in 1978 that Parallel Lines was the eighth best album of the year. Rolling Stone placed drummer Clem Burke as one of the top 100 drummers of all time. I recently caught up with Blondie drummer and founding member Clem Burke. Well, you know, it was great working with Mike Chapman. You know, he was a songwriter and uh, had some big hits in the UK. And I was a fan of most of the artists that he worked with. Mike was a, a great producer, but also, you know, I give credit to the band had changed at that time. You know, we uh, had two new members, uh, Frank Infante and Nigel Harrison. I don't think without the two of them and with Mike, we wouldn't, we wouldn't have been able to make Parallel Lines. They were all contributors. We forced Mike to record with us in New York City. You know, he really wanted us to, uh, to go out to California to make that record. And uh, we insisted that he come to New York. And I remember we were you know, doing pre-production during a snowstorm. And, you know, he's bitching about that he could be in Beverly Hills with his feet up by the swimming pool. And, uh, but we coerced him into uh, coming to New York. And, you know, he did pre-production at our loft on the Bowery. I was real excited about working with Mike because of uh, his uh, track record, you know, working with Sweet and Susie Quattro and even like the show Wadi Wadi, like the bubblegum glam rock stuff, all the hit records he had and his association with Mickey Most and uh, all those kind of things. But, uh, you know, Mike first saw it out in L.A. at the Whiskey. When we went into the studio with Mike, uh, we were prepared. And, uh, you know, he was a very hands-on producer. He'd be on the studio floor with us, you know, kind of conducting. And there's always been this uh, sort of uh, folklore about how uh, regimented he was and uh, how uh, he wanted to make us be able to play better, which I think he did. The main thing I liked about Mike was that he was, like I said, he was a songwriter. So he was really good with arrangements. And, uh, you know, prior to that, we worked with Richard Goddard on the first two albums. And uh, Richard was also a songwriter, producer, musician. And so uh, Mike really wanted to make a great record. And uh, we all kind of got down to it and uh, did it. With Blondie, we were all collectively uh, influenced by artists like Kraftwerk and the Bee Gees and... uh, you know, Saturday Night Fever is one of my favorite records. I mean, the band is just playing amazingly on that record. You know, in the film, you know, it's kind of uh, almost like a punk rock movie. It's a story of a guy from Brooklyn, you know, comes over and wants to try to make it in New York and really uh, kind of pushes his way through. And uh, I think we all related to that, you know, coming from the outer boroughs. And uh, when we were hanging out in the clubs, before CBGB, there was a club called Club 82, which was basically a, a dance club, a gay dance club that would have rock bands one night a week on Wednesday nights. And the music that they played 
at the club was all um, disco dance music. The disco lifestyle blended in, you know, with the gay lifestyle that was going on uh, in New York City. And, uh, you know, it was a melting pot for all kinds of influences and uh, all kinds of lifestyles. Parallel Lines was the album that brought us this uh, major success in the United States and around the world after that. And of course, Heart of Glass was a big part of that. I don't think we were ever aware of the fact that Heart of Glass was going to be such a huge hit. When you look at the album Parallel Lines, usually the idea was back in the day with vinyl was, you know, the uh, so-called radio-friendly songs, the hit songs, would be kind of on the first, second, or third maybe tracks of the album. You know, because it would go to the program director and the program director put the needle down on the first track. And maybe if he liked that, he'd move to the second, you know, or move to the third. But I mean, it was rarely that they would listen to an entire album, I would think. And you see Heart of Glass is buried on the side two of Parallel Lines. So we thought we were experimenting and uh, using the synthesizer and then the uh, Roland uh, drum machine was a big step for us in a lot of ways. And we were just kind of keeping up with uh, technology, I guess, at the time. I enjoyed that song. It wasn't one of my favorites. You know, I was more of a rock and roller. But I did uh, get inspired by uh, the Bee Gees and by Saturday Night Fever and also by the music that I heard at Club 82. Shame, 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 rock the boat, uh, on and on. My, one of my favorite stations on Sirius Radio is, is uh, Channel 54, which is aptly... Uh, Channel 54 because of uh, Studio 54. So they play, uh, they play 70s and 80s dance music on there, and I, I kind of like that station a lot. Dance music is great when a band is playing it, like like Casey and the Sunshine Band. I saw them play uh, a while ago, and uh, Casey was like a disco Bruce Springsteen. I mean, he was like amazing. And, you know, the band was great. It's just the, the programmable dance music, you know, that's a whole other story, especially being a drummer, you know, it's you know, drum programming. I mean, I got into it early on, but you know, I prefer to hear live drums. Fade away, radiate. Well, what's my personal favorite on Parallel Lines? It's all like one big song to me, to tell you the truth. But um, Fade Away and Radiate is definitely a one-off, you know, mainly one reason of obviously Robert Fripp from King Crimson plays guitar on it. And he does that Frippertronics, he calls it. You know, there's a there's a great album he did with uh, Brian Eno called No Pussyfooting. Uh, the two of them were just uh, basically jamming on his guitar and on Eno's electronics. And, uh, you know, I liked King Crimson when I was a kid, actually, a lot. And uh, to have Robert play on that was a great juxtaposition of, of you know, he had prog rock, maybe you would call it that he was known for. And then you had so-called new wave punk rock on the other side and kind of coming together on that was a brilliant synergy, I think. And uh, it was great to play with Robert in a studio. And when we were rehearsing, we would do a lot of jamming. And actually uh, the song One Way or Another kind of came out of a jam with Robert as well, with Robert Fripp. One way or another, I'm gonna find you. Doing Midnight Special, a live performance of Heart of Glass on Midnight Special was uh, interesting because we had been in L.A. for quite some time and we've been having a lot of fun 
And so I think we brought the fun to the studio that day, maybe from, from the night before, which was still going on. We were um, not really sure how we were going to be uh, presented on that show because uh, if you remember a little later, the Cars got to host the show and they got to choose their uh, guests. They had uh, the band Suicide on, for instance. And when we were on, it was pretty much uh, straight ahead, you know, M.O.R. type of, I forget who else was on with us, but uh, I think we were a little different for the whole uh, studio audience there at the time. They would cut away to people break dancing to like, one way or another. It was a very strange experience in a way, but we always loved doing television, you know. I mean, we spent a lot of time doing shows like Top of the Pops and uh, et cetera in, uh, in the UK, you know. We were really used to being on TV and that was always fun to do TV. When we opened for Rush, I don't think we were used to being in an arena to begin with. And I doubt we probably had very minimal sound check. And I think at that time, we've all come to realize there's all kinds of great music. You know, there's just uh, that the cliche is only good and bad music. I mean, Rush were obviously a brilliant band. I guess our agent just kind of tried to put us on whatever he could get us on as far as uh, opening acts. And uh, we also opened for Journey, which was pretty funny. And we also opened for REO Speedwagon, too. With the success of Heart of Glass, we were kind of like there was a backlash the whole Disco Sucks era, there was kind of a backlash uh, against us with our sort of base audience, I would suppose, in some ways. And also, um, you know, we found ourselves being put in situations that we didn't necessarily feel comfortable in as for certain kind of television shows and things like that. Um, but I have fond memories of doing uh, American Bandstand. Dick Clark was great. And that was at that same era. You know, I know we did one way or another on there. But um, yeah, the television exposure was a big, big, uh, big thing. We didn't get to uh, Saturday Night Live until the next album, though, to Eat to the Beat. The best thing that happened to me with the, the movie Roadie was when we covered uh, Ring of Fire by uh, Johnny Cash, obviously. And I, I got to meet Johnny. Uh, and uh, he acknowledged uh, that he knew that we had covered his song, which was really great. And, uh, you know, being in Austin, Texas at that time, it was real early on for the, you know, the, the evolution of Austin. But I, I could see it coming. And uh, I have a lot of fond memories of Austin in general. There was a lot of good clubs there. And, uh, yeah, we had a good time with that. You know, Art Carney was in the movie Roadie and uh, Meatloaf. I've met actual guitar techs and things like that. They actually have the Roadie tattoo, tattoo on their arm, which is pretty amazing. The Ramones they asked me to join the Ramones maybe three or four times over the time I was with Blondie. The first time was uh, I was with Tommy Ramone, the original drummer uh, in England, <clears throat> at a Ramones gig, and when he told me that he was leaving, and I couldn't believe that he was actually contemplating leaving, which he did leave. He said he just couldn't take it any longer. This was like really when the Ramones were, it was their second album. And, uh, you know, I had a few meetings with them about joining at different times, but of course I had Blondie was going. When I eventually did wind up playing with them, it was without any kind of uh, preparation. You know, they didn't want to rehearse. John didn't want to rehearse. He just wanted me to be able to go play it. So, I mean, you know, I rehearsed myself in, in my little studio, but it wasn't the same as playing with the band. So we never really rehearsed. So it was kind of trial by fire. And uh, Joey and I were, were, were good friends. And we kind of talked about expanding the, the sound of the band a little bit. And... Uh, 
John in particular was not into that, you know, so um, it was a short lived. And uh, I think the best thing that they did was get Mark back. You know, that was, I was good. He kind of got himself together and he came back. I like the Ramones. I mean, they were like the, probably the second most influential rock and roll band of all time, you know, other than the Beatles. And uh, I'm happy to be part of it. You know, I think maybe the, one of the first gigs I did with, with Blondie, we were opening for the Ramones at a place called Performance Studios, which was a re- rehearsal recording studio that Tommy Ramone and uh, their tour manager, Monty Melnick, had. And uh, we played with them there. And, you know, we played with them at various times. And we used to uh, rehearse sometimes in Arturo Vega, their uh, lighting designer, and the guy who came up with the logo and T-shirts and all. We used to rehearse in his in his loft early on when Joe, Joey and Didi both lived in the loft at the time. During the eighties, you know, I I started a working relationship with with Dave Stewart and Annie Lennox, and uh, that led to a lot of different things. And I had a had a band right after Blondie called Checkered Past with uh, Steve Jones from the Sex Pistols and, and Nigel Harrison from Blondie. And I remember inviting various men like Debbie and all like when Eurythmics played at the. Remember they used to have that gig on the. Uh, by the Intrepid on the piers in uh, New York City there. Did a couple of nights there with Eurythmics. I invited them down. No one ever showed up for that and things like that. And we always playing with Dramarama at CBGB's. I thought people might show up, but they didn't. So there was like a big, big gap of time that where I didn't see <coughs> the other members of Blondie. I was just kind of doing my own thing with, uh, you know, moving on. I understand you're working on your memoir, Clem. Yeah, it's called The, the Other Side of the Dream my life in and out of Blondie. And uh, we, um, you know, there's a lot of time, uh, lag time in the book publishing. Uh, it's probably not going to come out till, till sometime in maybe late, maybe Christmas, 2022. You know, I'm still working on it, but I'm, the response has been great. And I've got, I'm more than halfway through it. It's not really an autobiography. It's more like a memoir. You know, it's, uh, it's not like, you know, from the beginning of my life till now, it's kind of like just things that happened to me along the way. And, you know, it's a lot to do with other artists that I worked with, like, like Bob Dylan or like the Ramones or Nancy Sinatra, loads of other people, you know, my experiences with all of them with Iggy Pop and a lot of different people like that. So um, I find it inspiring. And it's also, I'm, it's also parts of it where I just talk about things that influenced me and, and artists that I like kind of little essays about all that's like the New York Dolls for instance you know there's a little dot Blondie documentary coming out about our trip to Havana I think that's going to debut at Tribeca Film Festival coming right up and uh, it's going to be an EP a live EP from Cuba as well and uh, yeah but the pandemic is kind of really put me in a retrospective mood in general with the memoir. Uh, I've been enjoying it, but sometimes I kind of feel like I'm kind of looking back all the time. I prefer, I'd like to look a little more forward. Uh, you know, we have a Blondie tour booked in for November in the UK. It was postponed and uh, it looks like it might be postponed again into April of 2022. But as of now, we have an arena tour happening <clears throat> in the UK in November. I mean, the tickets have been sold, but uh, I don't know if it's going to be able to go forward or not. The band now is Debbie, Chris, and myself, with along with, with Lee Fox and Taurus, Tommy Kessler, and uh, keyboard player Matt Katz-Bowen. But, uh, Debbie, Chris, and I kind of remain. Um, 
it would be interesting to see everyone regroup. And I, I, for one, you know, those guys are my friends. And that concludes this installment of Verse Chorus Noise. I want to thank Clem Burke from Blondie. And I want to thank all the listeners and supporters. We'll see you next time. All right, man. Take care. Nice to meet you. Bye.